This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, like it or not, uh, I am type A. Uh, <laughs> and no one has ever explained to me exactly what it means to be type A, um, but I take it to mean that I have um, an overdeveloped preference for order um, <laughs> and perhaps even like a bloated desire for control. So um, this means that when I'm in a car with someone who is driving erratically, I get motion sick. Um, and I found that the way to, to prevent this is to um, try to figure out where they're going. So if I can know where they're going, then the motion sickness will at least be a little bit subsided. Um, so in order not to make any of you who might happen to be type A motion sick, I wanted to give you a map of where I'm going. Um, just in case the way that I navigate things is different from the way that you navigate things, you'll at least have a sense of where I'm intending to go. All right. um, since the title of the retreat uh, is Practical Wisdom in Unpractical Times, my overall goal or destination is to support your ability to act with practical wisdom, that is with prudence. In my experience, it is far easier to act prudently if you know what acting prudently means. Also, it's easier to grasp what acting prudently means if you know why acting prudently matters. So the map of my presentation is going to follow those three question words. Why, what, and then how. First, I'll look at why we should care about the virtue of prudence at all, or at, for virtue in general, for that matter. Second, what is involved in acting prudently? And here I'll look at first what the virtue of prudence is as a whole, and then articulated into its parts. And then third, how can we grow in our ability to act prudently? Why, what, and then how. One last comment before I, I launch in. As Father mentioned in the introduction, I grew up in Connecticut. Um, what he didn't mention was that I was raised by Californians um, who happened to be my parents. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the first things that my parents did when they moved out east, as they say, um, was to order a truckload of sand to be dumped in our suburban backyard. Um, why? For a sand volleyball court. <laughs> um, it took me a while to appreciate the uniqueness of this because uh, the sand came before I was born. Um, <laughs> if any of you have ever lived around sand, you know that after rainfall or after dewfall and then a little bit of sun, the sand crusts over. Um, when I was younger and shorter than I am now, it was my job to run around on the volleyball court after the dewfall and then the sun in order to break up the crust so that the adults could play without distraction. <laughs> so I'm taking this presentation in sort of the same light um, as, as I took my job of running around on the volleyball court when I was younger and shorter. Uh, in particular, 
my intention is to kick the sand around a little bit so that the other speakers can come in and, um, you know, bump set spike. Or <laughs> um, my original analogy was uh, that they could dig moats and build, build sand castles. So I'm breaking up um, the crust on the surface. Um, this is all to say I know that, or I suspect that much of what I say will be repeated and will be refined in greater detail later. Um, so I appreciate this, this task and ask you to receive it in that same, same way. So why talk about the virtue of prudence? Why talk about virtue at all? First, uh, an observation. Life is complex. Life isn't a series of discrete chapters neatly demarcated by big decisions that we overtly discern. Rather, it's a messy word cloud. This is to say, the clusters of choices that confront us on a daily basis are seldom either clear or simple. With all respect to Shakespeare, to be or not to be is not the question. Or rather, the question is never simply to sin or not to sin. If we could identify the question that faces us, it would be something like, which good and how? But even that isn't a single question. In headier terms, anyone who's on this retreat knows that the ultimate end of all of our choices is union with God. But each choice, each proximate choice, right, has potentially many proximate ends and many, many means leading to each of those ends and many principles that pertain to judging those means. I submit to you that each person's experience of the messiness of life is very much like the experience of a cantor listening to the tone of the psalms drop in pitch and rhythm. <laughs> By the way, this is the only example that I'm going to use throughout the entirety of this presentation, so I hope you like it. <laughs> Um, and if you don't like it, then please figure out now how you can translate this into something else that, that is closer to your own experience. Um, I'm using it, by the way, because I think it's kind of neutral. Um, and because I, I hope that you've all experienced, well, not the dropping of the pitch, um, but, but you've all had an experience of, of chanting in choir. So the ultimate end of singing in choir is that God be glorified by our union with him. Hopefully... If I'm the cantor, my attention is at least partially fixed on this ultimate end. But look at all the proximate ends that are beckoning me to act in entirely different ways. Should I raise the pitch to be aesthetically pleasing and therefore not distracting? Should I let the pitch slide so that everyone, or at least everyone who can sing in a low register can be of one voice? Should I make some discreet, what should I do gesture at the superior so that I can divest myself of my own control of the situation? Should I stop singing altogether so as to avoid adding to the dissension? Or perhaps I should direct my attention to something entirely elsewhere, like the coffee stain on someone's habit. <laughs> 
so that I won't be assaulted by the aesthetic evil. <laughs> Life is messy, and we need some means to navigate the messiness. Prudence presents itself as such a means. But before we get to prudence, here's a second observation. Left to our own devices, most of us default to two inadequate means of dealing with life's messiness. Some of us default to an extreme or exclusive focus on rules or laws. It's curious to me that this default appeals both to people who live in their intellect, people who love abstractions, and also to people who are salt of the earth, who are eminently practical, and who are usually annoyed by the people who live in their intellect. Both kinds of people, nevertheless, appreciate lists of rules and duties by which the messiness of life, that is to say, by which any individual case can be simplified. Perhaps both kinds of people have a common desire to work through the messiness once and for all, just getting the rules down or memorizing those rules that others have worked through, so as to avoid doing that work happily ever after. Amen. So how would a rule follower navigate the chanting and choir scenario? Probably by fixing upon one rule um, by which all the other potentially applicable rules could be dismissed. Something like, when the pitch drops down below a certain time, like, you know, like A below middle C, then I will raise the pitch a fifth. Um, incidentally, uh, this happened to be when I, when I first entered um, uh, my community, the Congregation of St. Cecilia. This was the practice. So in the middle of a psalm, um, you know, it, particularly in the evening when people were a little more tired, like it would just, it would drop and it would drop a significant amount. And then the cantor in the middle of the psalm would just start singing. <laughs> <clears throat> and when I, uh, when I was visiting, so I was, I was uh, discerning with, <laughs> with the community, I didn't know that it wasn't supposed to drop because the dropping was so regular. And then it would go <laughs> that I asked um, the, one of the sisters, I said, how do I know when, when to drop? <laughs> um, and, and I should also say, in, in defense of my own community, um, this is a universal predicament of all cantors everywhere. And the dropping of pitch is just part of falling human nature. Um, so, so. <laughs> um, all right. So this, this method, raise the pitch by a fifth once it gets down to a certain thing, uh, when, you know, a certain level, this is, this is appealing because it's simple. Um, and to a certain extent, it works. It's also not entirely wrong-headed because any true law or any, um, you could say, I don't want to say a true rule, but um, any true law, namely one that reflects objective reality, should be followed. But this isn't ideal. Why not? Here are two reasons. First, no list of laws or duties could ever anticipate all of life's contingencies. Lists of rules and duties simplify, but at the expense of disregarding 
what is peculiar. But sometimes it's what is peculiar that is most important. For example, in the choir, maybe one of the sisters just had neck surgery. <laughs> that happened recently. <laughs> maybe some of the other sisters have just come home with hand wrestling <laughs> parents, angry parents, you know, of negligent students, and they're exhausted. Another reason why this, this uh, manner, which we could just call casuistry, um, of simplifying decisions is, in, uh, is not ideal is because it focuses our attention on the rules rather than on the things that are in front of us. This is far from desirable because being fully alive consists in far more than attending to the rules, no matter how much you like them. So not everyone deals with life's messiness by focusing on the rules or on the abstractions or on the duties. Others among us default to an extreme or exclusive focus on the particular movements of our hearts and of our attention. We can understand this tendency both as a natural disposition and also perhaps as a reaction to living with someone who is focused on the rules. So the naturally or the reactionarily spontaneous among us might say, there are just too many contingencies and too many potentially applicable rules to deal with, to categorize. So better to rely on the Holy Spirit to direct everything I do. Now the choir example is a little harder to describe for the spontaneous person. Um, so the heart-led cantor would perhaps do the first thing that comes to mind, taking that as the inspiration. Perhaps the cantor would do nothing for want of clearly discerning that inspiration. Perhaps the cantor would do the last thing that comes to mind, taking that as the intended inspiration just by process of elimination. Just as before, there is surely some goodness in this position. We should be alert to the interior movements of the heart, even if they're not from the Holy Spirit. But this way of navigating life is also far from ideal. And here are two reasons why. First, it's impossible on the basis of introspection alone to distinguish between the touch or the voice of the Holy Spirit and the touch or the voice of my own passions of my own fears and desires. It's impossible on the basis of introspection alone. Second, this manner of simplifying our decisions focuses our attention on our interior responses rather than on the things before us. So most of us, I think even if you hadn't thought of it in these two categories, most of us are aware that these are options available to us. And I believe most of us are also aware of the pitfalls of following exclusively one or the other. I also think that most of us manage this sort of dichotomy by shifting momentarily between one or the other. <laughs> so we'll follow the rules when they're clear, and then when they're not, we'll kind of uh, be spontaneous. 
This, of course, isn't ideal either. It's not the true third way, but there is a true third way. What is it? <laughs> Dramatic pause. Okay. <laughs> All right, so moving on to our uh, second question word, what? Virtue of prudence, what is it? First, let's look in, in general at what the virtues are. And I'm taking for granted uh, a bit of familiarity with um, some, I guess, philosophical and theological terminology. But um, so take this as a review or an introduction, depending on where you are. So virtue is the means to happiness or holiness as an end. But virtue isn't a means in the sense that we leave it behind once we are enjoying that end. Virtue, rather, is a qualification of our powers, where our powers are our abilities to act and to suffer. Virtue qualifies or shapes our abilities to act such that these abilities are not only integrated with respect to one another, but also such that we are made fit for union with God. Further, virtue isn't simply a label that is affixed upon us from the outside as a description of some internal achievement. Rather, virtue is the principle of internal achievement. And this principle remains internal to us. Virtue is a power in the sense of like a superpower. This power is in us, not by nature, like our natural powers to act are in us, but virtue is in us either by repeated deliberate acts or by a supernatural gift of God. And in this presentation, I'm gonna focus, at least for now, on those virtues which we acquire rather than those that are a supernatural gift um, of God. And to refer back to the sand analogy, those virtues that are the gift of God are either in a different sandbox or I think more appropriately <clears throat> in a deeper layer of sand. St. Thomas, um, following ancient tradition, identifies these acquired virtues or the four cardinal virtues um, as prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. They're called cardinal, referring to the word for hinge, because all other virtues hinge upon these. Each of the four cardinal virtues perfects or makes good, makes radiant, a different natural power of the soul. There are different ways of presenting these powers. Um, and so perhaps the way that I'm presenting it is, is a little different. It'll end up getting to the same dis uh, distribution. But I prefer to begin by distinguishing between the power of apprehension and the power of appetite. So first, our powers of apprehension. What are they? Apprehension, if I can you know, just do a gesture, is 
our taking in of the world, our ability to take in the world in a certain manner. We can apprehend on the level of sensible particulars, like I'm touching the podium right now and seeing all of you, um, and we can apprehend on the level of intellect. So I can apprehend not only the sensible particulars, but also an order that is common among many sensible particulars. Our powers of appetite are also divided into sense appetite and then intellectual appetite. So here, rather than taking in the world, appetite is a manner of responding to what I have taken in. So appetite will respond to apprehension, either by drawing toward or drawing away. The intellectual virtues are the ones that perfect our power of apprehension, whereas the moral virtues are those that perfect our appetites. Even though it makes sense um, ordinarily to discuss first the intellectual virtues and then the moral virtues, I'm going to um, swap the order just so that we will end up with prudence and then I'll go in greater depth only on prudence. So this is, this is like water skiing over the surface of everything. Okay. First then, uh, the moral virtues. So the moral virtues perfect our appetites. We have an appetite both for sensible particulars and for the intelligible order that we perceive in those particulars. The virtues that perfect our sense appetite, which can also just be called our passions, they differ on the basis <clears throat> excuse me, of the things to which we are responding. So we can distinguish the, among the passions in two basic ways. We have one set of passions that are called the concupiscible passions. Which I like the emphasis concupiscible, right? So the concupiscible passions uh, are those that respond to an apparent good or an apparent evil that is either easy to get or easy to avoid. So my stock examples for this are brownies. That's an apparent good. <laughs> and, you know, unless you're on some sort of television program where you like, like the brownie is the, the reward, they tend to be easy to get. Right. Um, so if I say brownies, almost all of you smile. <laughs> um, and uh, my classic example of an evil that is rather easy to avoid is like the cold air um, <laughs> that's outside right now um, in the morning such that if you were to go out on a jog, you would hit that cold air. It's actually pretty easy to avoid that cold air. Just don't go on the jog. Right? <laughs> um, so our, um, you know, when you first open it, suppose you, you're able to drag yourself out of bed, you put your you know, jogging clothes on, um, and then you, you open the door, and then all of a sudden, like you, you had intended to jog, but then you have, you have an appetite that goes Close the door, close the door, close the door, close the door, right? So those are your concupiscible passions saying, run away. Um, um, and those are, you could say, cousins of or friends of um, the passions that arise when someone either bakes brownies or mentions brownies. You don't have the run away, run away. It's the, you know, mine, 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 right? That, um, that shows up. So those passions 
correspond to the virtue of temperance. So temperance will permit you to, um, or, or perfect your capacity to um, resist at appropriate times and then um, submit at other times to um, those passions that are inclining you towards certain pleasures um, or away from certain pains. The other set of passions are called the irascible passions. And these come out when the apparent good or the apparent evil is difficult to achieve or difficult to avoid. So I don't have many stock examples of this, um, but since many of you are in um, degree programs and perhaps advanced degree programs, um, <laughs> a, uh, I could say that a, a good um, that is you know, difficult to acquire would be, well, completing the dissertation, <laughs> right? That's you know, a series of many, many acts, but that is a good, okay, I'm seeing some faces like, yes, this is a good, and yes, it is, it is difficult. Um, and I know this is maybe a little too uh, close to this example to be very effective, but writer's block is an evil that is difficult to avoid. <clears throat> Would that we could just close the door and be done with the writer's block in the way we could be done with you know, the cold air on the jog. So a different set of passions um, respond to these apparent goods and apparent evils. And the virtue that perfects these passions is fortitude. So fortitude will at times um, allow us to, you know, courageously venture forth, um, and at times um, to despair, you know, at times to hope, um, at times to fear, and um, at times to, I would say, submit to anger, but um, to act with anger. Okay, so those are the virtues that pertain to the sense appetite. So um, what about the other appetite, um, the intellectual appetite, which is also called the will? The virtue that perfects this is justice. And there is too much to say about justice, even to give an example of, um, of a single act of willing. So I'll set that aside. Hope that um, one of the later speakers addresses it. All right, on to the intellectual virtues. St. Thomas, following Aristotle, notes that our activity of thinking differs on the basis of the kinds of things that we are thinking about. What we do when we're thinking, uh, when we're intellectually resting with a principle, for example, differs from what we do when we are intellectually wrestling with how to apply that principle. When our thinking involves only what is necessary and invariable and speculative, we engage in three different acts, so intellection, reasoning, and then wisdom each of which have particular virtues that perfect them. When our thinking involves what is contingent and variable and practical, in other words, when our thinking deals with the messiness of life, our thinking is perfected either by the virtue of art, which is interesting, and or by the virtue of prudence. Got there at last, right? So the virtue of art, just to make a quick distinction, perfects our thinking about um, making. So um, when we make things, 
um, things respond to very definite principles. And so you can say that art is, uh, is a much neater um, virtue, or it's a, it, it guides us to a task that is much more clearly defined than acting, because acting has many, many more contingent um, variables. So art concerns making, and then prudence concerns acting or doing. Okay, there needs to be a TI retreat, by the way, on each of these cardinal virtues. There's a pitch. <laughs> All right, so virtue of prudence, zeroing in. So prudence, again, is the virtue that perfects the intellect's contribution to human action, to doing, to acting. Prudence, in other words, perfects the thinking that is essential to any choice. It's worth mentioning that prudence comes into play only when the appetite has fixed upon a certain end or goal. <clears throat> the work of prudence is determining which means are best for achieving that given end or given goal. St. Thomas divides the work of prudence into three moments, and he calls them parts. I prefer the language of moments because it suggests a certain temporal order through which we proceed. There are virtues that are particular to each of these three moments, but prudence is always the matrix in which each of these sub-virtues, so to speak, are meaningful to us. All right, the first moment of the work of prudence is inquiry. And Thomas will also uh, often call this um, counsel. The boundaries of what we inquire into, or that into which we take counsel, the boundaries are determined by the end that has been um, set upon by our appetite. So in a single act of or the work of prudence, one have to consider all variables anywhere, you know, at all times, right? um, but it will consider those that have been, um, you could say that are somehow close to or appear to be um, related to the end in sight. Um, in the example of the chanting and choir, given a cantor's desire to achieve unity of voice, so there's a, you know, I've fixed my, my appetite upon a certain end, unity of voice. Um, the cantor would inquire into two things. First, um, she would inquire into all of the, rev uh, the relevant particulars of the situation. So, who is here? What are the natural abilities of this, these people? <laughs> are they tone deaf? <laughs> um, this inquiry requires attentiveness to objective reality in all of its facets. It also requires the ability to see what is relevant to the given end and what is not. So, as I'd mentioned earlier, the coffee stain on that sister's cape is probably not relevant to whether or not she is capable, you know, of, of responding to me if I raise the pitch. Second, the cantor would inquire, as to say, perhaps just to bring to mind, 
Um, so inquire doesn't always mean to discover anew. Um, it can just mean to kind of fix the attention upon. So she would inquire into all of the principles that might be relevant to this situation. Some of the principles are known naturally um, through what we could call uh, innate conscience. And an example of this kind of a principle would be do good and avoid evil. Other relevant principles need to be discovered through experience or even need to be taught to me. So one that would be discovered, raising the pitch results initially in dissonance. Or never do for another what she can and should do for herself. And one that would need to be taught, the cantor should defer to the superior's wishes. <laughs> okay, so that's the first moment is just bringing to mind, again, the relevant particulars and the relevant universal principles. So the second moment of the work of prudence is judgment. So inquiry and then judgment. What we do when we judge is to apply a principle, which is universal, to the particulars of a situation. So judgment brings together those two things about which we have inquired. The relevant details, by the way, um, are relevant because of the end or goal that we've determined by the will. Because there are so many particular details, however, and so many universal principles that are relevant to a given goal, this moment of judgment also needs to do a little bit of sorting out. We need to, in judgment, settle upon which details among all those relevant details and which relevant universal principles among all those that are relevant to the end, which one of these are primary and which are secondary. Keeping in mind that this ordering, or keep in mind that this ordering isn't something that can be determined in abstraction from the relevant situation, from this situation here and now. And this is where it starts to be very difficult to talk about judgment, because I can, I can say these words, but what does this actually look like? <laughs> um, it's hard to, hard to say. But we'll leave it at this that in judgment there is some designation of one principle as primary over others. In the choir example, um, the tiredness of the sisters, the fact that I came to choir already annoyed, and maybe the absence of the superior, all these would suggest that the principle unity of heart is better than unity of voice is primary rather than unity of voice is better than aesthetic assault. So it can be the case that you, have, um, you can be right in your judgment about many a principle regarding many of these relevant details, but which one of these is, um, is primary for acting or rather for command, which is the third moment. I'm going to briefly mention um, this third and final moment of the work of prudence. And I'm saying brief uh, because Father Aquinas, whose presentation will come after this, will be going into 
um, commanding prudence in great detail. So I'll mention it and then return to give some um, clarifications just about the work of prudence as a whole. So after the intellect has inquired and then judged, the final moment is to command. With command, um, the will is more intimately, you could say directly involved than in the first two moments of the work of prudence. We can distinguish in our mind between command and judgment by imagining someone who achieves the judgment, other words, who, who sees all the relevant principles and the relevant particulars, and who is capable of sorting these out in terms of primary and secondary, but then who fails to act on the judgment that's made. We might say that someone who achieves judgment but falls short of commanding an act shoulds on himself. He says, I should, and that has force, but he never transfers that force onto things. He or she or I instead either carries the weight of that should around or tries to transfer it to another. So if you know people around you, don't look around right now. <laughs> All right, um, back to the work of prudence as a whole with all three of its moments. I think it's helpful to distinguish between what mature prudence looks like and uh, that from what on the way to prudence looks like. And when I say looks like, I'm referring primarily to our experience of, of doing it. So kind of what it feels like, even though I don't like the like to say feel. <laughs> what does it feel like um, to be prudent? I don't know. But what does it feel like to be on the way toward prudence? That I know. A mature act of prudence is just seeing and doing. It's not methodical. So the man of practical wisdom doesn't consciously say, okay, so the first step is inquiry. All right. Um, the mature man of practical wisdom, in other words, doesn't just move through these steps quickly. Rather, the steps are integrated. It's almost as a seamless whole. It's almost as though these steps are no longer discrete, um, but they occur um, as a whole. Those of us observing from the outside might look at the man of practical wisdom um, usually with some mix of awe and jealousy. Seeing rightly for the man of practical wisdom is for him both quick and easy. So not so for those of us who are trying to grow in prudence. If seeing and doing rightly are not yet quick and easy for us, we have to develop this capacity by deliberate acts. And as you perform a prudent act, initially, um, sorry, as you perform a prudent act um, initially by deliberately focusing on each moment, um, rather than just seeing all the relevant details and all the relevant principles, you'll probably need to metaphorically pick up each detail, you know, and say, is this relevant? 
and then put it down, <laughs> pick it up and put it down. So again, rather than kind of standing back and seeing, the, having the, the relevant details jump out, um, we need to be, you know, very almost, uh, yes, methodical with ourselves. Um, and I, I don't have this in the notes, but it was occurring to me as I was initially thinking about this, um, this presentation that um, most of my experiences of having you know, discussions about prudence are rather short and fleeting and embarrassing because someone will say, sister, is that prudent? <laughs> um, which, is, which is someone from the outside looking at one thing that I'm doing. Like I'm, I'm just doing, I'm about to do this thing. Um, and so in other words, this is, and someone's basically saying, when someone asks, is that prudent? That means it's not. Right? <laughs> um, so that is not the paradigm case of prudence in action. Um, but sometimes that's where we have to start. Um, so if we are at the very beginning stages of wanting to grow in prudence, then maybe even just, you know, in initiating the, the intention to be imprudent is one of those first steps. Um, okay. So as we're seeking to grow in prudence, each of the moments will probably be prolonged, discreet, and difficult. But if we persevere, we will become prudent. And we will persevere if, and only if, we desire to be prudent. So the third and final question word, how? Here I'd like to attempt to imitate what I take to be divine pedagogy. In my experience, the Lord tells me what he wants before he ever tells me why, if he ever tells me why. And he tells me what not before he tells me what, if he ever tells me what. So for this last part, I'd like to identify what not to do if you wish to grow in prudence. I'm going to restrict myself to five easy steps to imprudence, trusting again that the other speakers will um, do much more with the sand than I'm doing. Five easy steps. First, assume that your passions are not saboteurs. The passions can cause distortion of memory. And this is something that we are seldom aware of unless it is brought to our attention, either by our own deliberate act of seeking to purify our memories or by the prompting of someone else saying, was that really how it was? Memory is exceedingly important for prudence because without memories of particulars before, we won't be capable of taking in the whole of the particulars that are relevant to this end. Second, never look at anything twice. If you never look at anything twice, you're assuming that you saw the whole picture the first time. You're assuming that the Lord revealed everything to you in your first experience. This is a failure to distinguish between 
objective reality itself and how objective reality is colored by the momentary judgments that we have. Third step to imprudence, look at everything twice and then twice again and again and again. If you find yourself doing this, um, you, along with the rest of the human race, struggle with trust. We will often feel paralyzed um, to judge or to act in the absence of absolute certainty. Unfortunately, this constant checking means constant activity. This is activity, however, that will prevent our acting, ironically. We will never be able to perceive things as they are, however, if we are always acting. Or to quote Joseph Pieper, only he who is silent can hear. Fourth, don't focus on the step right in front of you. The work of prudence always and only works on the means that are available to us right now. It's often out of fear of acting, that is fear of acting wrongly, that we focus on anything other than what we can actually do right now. This, in my experience is procrastination, <laughs> or at least this is at work in procrastination. We procrastinate from discerning whatever God wants us to discern by focusing sometimes on the middle distance. <laughs> that is, on some particular good that we have picked out for ourselves. We do this as an alternative to allowing the Lord to direct our attention to the thing that he wants us to consider. We can also procrastinate by focusing not on the middle distance, but on the abstract goal, holiness in general. Um, which you say, of course God wants me to be holy, uh, but holiness and abstract is not his desire for you. Fifth and finally, don't focus on the ultimate end. This might sound like a contradiction, since the fourth step to imprudence implies that we shouldn't focus on anything that isn't actionable. And God, as our ultimate end, isn't actionable. So why would it lead to imprudence if we were to focus only on our work of prudence rather than on him as the ultimate goal? Here's why. If we don't focus on the end, on union for God, then our desire for him will wane. And if our desire for him wanes, no amount of inquiry or judgment or command, in a word, no choice will draw us closer to him. Peeper again. Without desire for the good in general, all efforts to discover what is prudent and good here and now remain empty bustle and self-deception. Boom. <laughs> All right. In closing, I'd like to recommend to you a brief exercise. 
And I recommend that you perform this at the end of every talk, and indeed at the end of every encounter that you have, not just here on retreat, but always. The exercise is simply to pause and ask the Lord to fix your attention on the one thing that he desires you to retain from the encounter. Ordinarily, this would take a few moments, and ordinarily I would stop talking. <laughs> um, but I'm going to intrude on your actually doing that exercise by telling you the answer that I would give if I were the Holy Spirit, <laughs> which I am not. Right. So I think the most important thing to remember from this talk, if you wish to grow in prudence, is that fifth step to imprudence. That is to say, if you do nothing else, fix your eyes on God as the ultimate end. Why? And there is a story, um, perhaps a legend, that St. Thomas's sister um, asked him, apparently she had never read the Summa, by the way, or anything that he'd written. She said, Tommy, how do I become holy? And he replied simply, desire it. We will not become holy or prudent unless we desire it. But how do we increase our desire? Only by looking at the object of our desire. Love of God, that is to say charity, is in this way both the beginning and the end of prudence. I was pleased to find that after I crafted this conclusion to my talk, um, that St. Thomas agrees with me. <laughs> Namely, that charity is the beginning and the end of prudence. And I will uh, let him, I guess I'll refer back to him, and in fact to, um, to the text of the Summa itself. In the Prima Secundae, uh, question 61, article 5, Thomas says that prudence in those who are on the way to holiness is nothing other than seeing all things in God. I believe it was also St. Bernard who said, what do they not see? They who see him who sees all things. Second, the Summa Theologica from which this whole presentation hopefully has been drawn, follows an exitus reditus structure. This exitus reditus structure, so coming from God and returning to God, is nothing other than two directions of charity. Exitus, God's love for us by which we are created as an expression of his glory. Reditus, our love for God, which itself is his gift to us, by which we return his love to him and thereby give him glory. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.